Tonight, the battle over boosters just hours before American a critical FDA advisory Good morning, church. Great to be with you as we continue our study through the book of Habakkuk. If you'd like to turn there, we're going to be finishing up chapter 2 this morning. And if you haven't been with us, maybe this is your first week or maybe you've been gone for a few weeks, we've been doing a study through the book of Habakkuk, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and, and we're, we're using the theme, Embracing Hope. What we're seeing is this prophet who's in this conversation with God about the troubling times he finds himself in, the the wickedness going on around him and asking how long God's going to wait. And then as God responds with the, the answer to that, he then has questions about how God would allow a more wicked nation like Babylon to rise up and judge these people. And this conversation has continued um, over the last few weeks, we've been seeing in chapter 2 these woes, these statements of judgment that are coming to Babylon. God is assuring Habakkuk that he sees the wickedness of this nation far more than Habakkuk does, that he knows the, the injustice that's going on, the greed that these people have, their false sense of security and their walls and their power and their army and And even today what we'll see is the idols that they look to and worship and make with their own hands, God sees it all. And his encouragement to Habakkuk is that he's going to do something about it. That statement, oh woe, it was this coming judgment because of their actions. And so there's there's this insight that God is giving Habakkuk in chapter 2. That I see Babylon, I know what kind of people they are. And there is a judgment coming for the wrong that they are doing. Today we're looking at that fifth and final woe, which is idolatry. And so you can pick up with me in chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Here's what we read. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray as we begin this morning. God, as we approach your word, we approach it recognizing that your word is truth. Not a truth, not my truth, the truth. And Lord, we submit ourselves under it this morning. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. Lord, as David said, we want to hide your word within our heart that we might not sin against you. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that your spirit would move, that you would give us spiritual eyes to see the truth within this text. 
You would give us a spiritual understanding and wisdom and discernment so that we might rightly divide the word of truth and apply it within our lives to bear much fruit. God, we pray that we would come to this text humbly. Lord, not looking to point the finger at the person to our left or our right, but allowing it to be a mirror that reveals to us our own wicked way. Lord, we pray that you would search our hearts this morning, that you would speak to your people and that we would respond, that you'd be glorified in what takes place this morning, that your word would go forth and not my own, that it would be your glory that is put on display this morning, and that all that we study and learn this morning would be pleasing to you. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you're taking notes and you want to write down a title for the section we're looking at tonight or this morning, you can write down the title, The Issues with Idols. The Issues with Idols. This fifth and final woe that we read of the idolatry that was taking place within Babylon. Now remember, as we mentioned last week, that although we are looking at a very real nation, a very real people, the Babylonians that would rise up in power and overthrow Judah, that there is also a spirit of Babylon that is very much alive and well and here today. That we can't simply write off all of these mistakes and and sinful, wicked things that the Babylonian Empire did as things that happened long ago and don't exist today. The reality is, when you compare the Babylonian Empire to all other empires and nations that have existed, what we see is that we all continue to struggle with these same things. And today, as we look at idolatry, it's important to look at a text like this with right understanding. That an idol was more than a religious box that you filled out on your application or your social media It was more than a distinction as to which church you attended and what their views were about baptism or spiritual gifts. An idol and the God it represented was the place that the people ran to when they were in trouble, what they looked to for help. It was their source for pleasure, which is why you see in many of the false gods they worshipped that there were temple prostitutes that came along with it. It was where they ran to with questions to seek wisdom and instruction and and guidance when it came to things like big decisions, where they would go, what they would do in a battle or a war, what would the outcome be. These idols were what they would run to in these moments. And it was where their hope laid for prosperity and power and influence even to the point that there were gods like Moloch that they would sacrifice their firstborn to in hopes of greater prosperity and blessing. Now the god of Molech may not be a statue that we see in in the United States today, but, but the act of killing our children for our own benefit, for our own freedoms, you could say, or to try and get ahead financially because I've got a career path and this is an inconvenience. Unfortunately, 
these false idols still very much exist in our culture today. They just may have taken a different form. They're more deceptive in the world today because in many cases, these same idols are being worshipped, but they're invisible. We don't have the statue in our living room, but we bow down to it just the same. And so as we look at our text this morning, it's important that we do so recognizing that idol worship is still very much an issue in our culture today. So don't picture the rabbit keychain for good luck and think that if I don't have that, I'm off scot-free. Don't picture the, the eight ball that you joke around with and ask some funny questions to see what it says. But ask yourself the question this morning, what is it that you run to in times of trouble that you hope will help you? What is it that you look to for your source of pleasure and gratification? What consumes your mental space throughout the day? What are you giving your energy and your time and your money to? What are the crutches that you can't seem to even go a day without? These are the idols, often invisible, but very much present of our day. And we begin in our text in verse 18 with a very important question. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? Now this is clearly a rhetorical question as we read on and see all the descriptions of these idols, that they're mute, that there's no life within them, that they're just wood and stone. And, but I love this question. It's an important question that we should all be asking ourselves. I wonder if you take the time to ask what the profit of something is before you invest in it. And I'm not just talking about investing your money. Do you ask yourself what the profit of something is before you invest your time? Before you start a new TV series that is seven seasons long and is going to take hours of your free time every single week, do you start by asking yourself the question, what is this going to actually profit my life? Is this going to make me closer to the Lord? Is this going to actually bring any kind of benefit to my life at all? Or is it just going to f fill time? Is it just going to take time? What does it profit? Is, the answer to my is this the answer to my problem or is it just an escape mechanism? When we have problems in our life, the things we immediately run to in that moment, maybe it's a substance, maybe it's a person, maybe it's an action. But do we stop to ask ourselves the question, what is this profit? Is this going to help the problem or is this going to just push it off till tomorrow? Is this just going to numb me of the pain I'm feeling in the midst of it? Or is it actually going to bring some kind of solution? God is asking the question here, what does it profit these idols that you're making, that you're investing your time and energy and your skill sets and even your resources because some of these are, are gold and silver plated. And what is it really giving you in return? What does it profit? 
We see the prophet Isaiah speaking clearly to the prophet of an idol. If we could go to the first text in Isaiah, I want you to see here, really it has no prophet at all. Indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. There's the answer to the question, what does it profit? In one word, nothing. It profits you nothing. It's worth nothing to you. It gives you nothing in return. And if we could go to that second slide. Just a few chapters later in Isaiah, what does he say? Those who make an image, all of them are useless. And their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. It profits you nothing. Isaiah makes it clear. And yet, so often, we don't take the time to stop and actually ask the question, what does it profit? We jump right back into it and we get caught in this habit form where we just immediately run to these things. Never stopping to say, will the problem be solved? Will the situation get better? Just immediately running to these vices These things we look to that can't offer us the help we desperately need. Or in our text, he goes on to say, The molded image is a teacher of lies. There's no truth within it. It promises, but it never delivers. Its very existence is a lie to the one true God who can actually help you in times of need. The very existence of another God, another thing to run to, it's a lie. It's a teacher of lies. Anything that comes from it is not truth. It's not sourced in truth. And it also is a lie to who you are in relationship to God. There's no need for more images when we have the one and true God who has made us in His image. And when we don't know who the Creator is, we cannot fully know who we are as His creation. And so not only is this idol a lie, but all that it would teach you about hope and life and your identity and the future is also a lie. If we don't start first and foremost recognizing the Lord God Almighty is the one and only true God. And he concludes... That as a teacher of lies, it can't be trusted. That the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. They possess a mouth, but they're unable to speak. In fact, another text we'll look at in a little bit, they have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, but they can't do anything to help you. Feet, but they can't walk. It displays all these forms of being able to offer you something, and yet it is a mute idol. There will be no words of wisdom given there. Paul writes to this in 1 Corinthians 12, 2, when he says, You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. You may think for some reason that this possesses wisdom and insight and something to help you and your life and your decisions you're making. 
Paul says it correctly, there are dumb idols. There is no wisdom to be found there. All wisdom comes from God. And anything apart from the true and living God is not going to give you the wisdom you need. Rightfully so, they are dumb idols. But he takes it a step further in verse 19. Here we see the word woe, destruction that is coming to those who say to wood, awake. Those who say to the silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. God is declaring the judgment that is coming to those who place their hope, their direction, their, their source of provision and pleasure and protection in an image made with their own hands. It's just a dead piece of wood. It's a silent stone with no life in it at all. It is gold and silver plated, but within it is just garbage. There's no real value. There's no source of life. There's no hope for you in it. The wall that the Babylonians looked to as their source of strength would be brought down and crumble. Their army that they saw as their power and their hope would be destroyed. Their riches would be taken from them. And every false god that they had hoped in would fail them. There's no life within it because there's no breath within it. And if it has no life in and of itself, you can be sure it has no life to offer you. He says, what profit is it you had to create this thing? It couldn't even create itself. And you think it has life to offer you? No, destruction is coming if this is where your hope lies. It has nothing truly to give you. But it can be easy for us to read this and to point the finger. To say how foolish they were to have those idols that they would worship, those, those gods that they would look to, and when the true and living God had made himself revealed to them, they should have known better. And yet how often we fall into the same trap. Our modern day idols that we run to and look to for wisdom, for strength, for pleasure, for protection, for hope, for identity that are apart from the true and living God who possesses all that we need for life and godliness, as we read in Peter. But I think it's important that we give a, a definition of an idol. I've heard many definitions of an idol, that it's, it's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. I've always liked the, the phrase that it's a good thing that becomes a God thing. That it's not necessarily something evil in and of itself, but when it becomes God, when it becomes the thing you run to, instead of the Lord, it becomes an idol. Like people. That we could enjoy sweet fellowship, encouragement, accountability, to sharpen one another with, can quickly become an idol. And we don't have to stretch to see this to be true. There are shows, the American Idol, 
What about professional athletes or movie stars that we look to for hope? That we look to for wisdom? I don't know what to do in this situation, but I really love this guy. And I always hear him on the news, and he, man, whatever he says, I'm just going to go with that. We don't run to the Lord to say, God, what would you have me to do? We say, well, I like this guy on, on, on the radio. I'm, I'm a big fan of, of this person. This is my favorite musical artist, so what do they say? What's their stance on this? And we, we align ourselves with a person and not with God and his word. These people that we praise, that we look up to. In fact, often that we even shape our lives around. But realize in your time of need and struggle, where are they? They're not going to be there to help you. They don't have the wisdom and truth that you desperately need, that your soul longs for. They were never meant to fill the void within your heart that only God can fill. What about money? It's shameful sometimes what people will do for some amount of money. Maybe it's the opportunity to win a million dollars. Maybe it's not even that much. Maybe it's an opportunity to win $100,000. And the things people will do and say and compromise on for that amount of money that they can't take with them in the grave. They could be here one day and gone tomorrow. The Beatles had the right idea. Money can't buy you love. Money also can't fix your problems. Money won't protect you when you are in danger. And money can't save your marriage when it's on the rocks. Money won't show you your purpose and identity in Christ. And it won't fulfill you. Money can't make you more of a man. It can't make you a better husband or father. It can't bring you closer to God. Money in itself is not evil, but the love of money and the pursuit of it has brought on all sorts of kinds of evil, heartbroken people, unsure of what to do, where to go. And what's next in their life? What about our image? The time and energy and money we spend to look thinner, to look younger, to look stronger. And in a world where image is everything, this can be a tempting idol to bow down to. How can we look more perfect as a person, as a family? How can we disguise our faults and our wrinkles and our mistakes and our problems so that nobody will know what's really going on? Does it bring us happiness? Does it bring us contentment? Does it bring us satisfaction? No, it, it leaves us on an island feeling alone. Like we constantly have to impress. We constantly have to do more and never really feeling like we've arrived. I believe one of the greatest idols in our culture today is entertainment. How much money is spent every year 
on entertainment. Movies, video games, concerts. We put a person on a stage. We spend hundreds of dollars to go and, and shout and praise their name and, and dance to them and throw our hands up. And For a person... We spend so much money and time. Do you know what it is? It's a modern day bread and circuses. It's what the Romans used to keep the people appeased so they wouldn't revolt. And they said, all we need is bread and circuses. You keep them filled and you keep them entertained and they'll never come against you. They'll never think for themselves. Do you know where more of our time and energy and money goes? to food and entertainment than anything else. We live in a culture where so many bow down to the idol of sex. It's in our movies, it's in our music, it's in our books, it's even in our school systems. And it's being taught to children. Because many people in power are bowing down to the God of sex. Now make no mistake, God Almighty made sex, but sex is not God. And it will not provide what we need for our identity, for our hope, for our satisfaction. It's in His presence where there is pleasures forevermore. I heard a pastor recently describe the idol of sports in this way, and I want you to to follow along with me on this, this story he shared. I want you to imagine someone from a different country coming for the first time to the United States. They know nothing about what goes on here. But suppose they come on a Sunday morning and observe many going to a building they call the church. They notice that apparently whatever takes place first at this church must not be that important. Because most of the people don't come until after it started. I'm not pointing any fingers. They watch people file in, mouth the words to these songs, virtually emotionless. And then they sit down and listen to someone talk and share some things with them. But it's obvious when the service must be coming to a close because the people are getting anxious. They're fidgety. They're looking around at others. They're checking their watch and their phone. And as soon as it is over, people quickly walk out. They go their separate ways. They quickly get to their cars and head home. Now compare those headed to church in the morning to those they see headed to another ceremony of some sort. Clearly, just by observation from the outside, this is a more important ceremony as the people are filled with excitement and anticipation for what awaits them. They're dressed in outfits specific to the ceremony known as jerseys, and many will travel in upwards of a few hours just to be a part of this ceremony. They gather together no matter where they're from, no matter if they've ever met before. If you're wearing a similar outfit you're as good as family. Arm in arm, we can celebrate together. And now joined together, they head into the stadium 
where thousands of others have traveled as well to join in this ceremony on what many would call hallowed ground. The value of this is without question due to the excitement within those attending. In fact, they even arrive quite early just to get there and be sure not to miss any part of what is going to take place. And they're willing to spend upwards of thousands of dollars just to be closer to the front that they might not miss a single thing. They will laugh, eat, drink, play, and celebrate with crowds of people around them having nothing else in common but their love for this ceremony and their commitment to its cause. And they won't be looking at their watches or the clock in this ceremony because they are so caught up in what is taking place that they actually celebrate when it goes into overtime. It goes later and people are cheering. They even welcome it. But they're not alone in this. Thousands of others all across the globe who were unable to make the trip are joining them via live stream to be a part of it from their homes because even if they couldn't be there in person, they wouldn't risk missing it for anything. In fact, they invite over their friends and their family to enjoy a meal and the ceremony with them so that they might celebrate and enjoy it together as a community. Now let me ask you a question. If you were that person visiting and we were to be honest, which would you identify as the religion most important to these people? What would you say it is that consumes them, that drives them, that motivates them, that they're living for? The thing that causes them to get up early and stay up late. The thing that's always a part of their conversation and sparks joy wherever they go. The thing that they can relate with anybody about. Their love and commitment to the idol of sports. Now, please don't hear me say that all sports are evil, and if you enjoy a game on Sunday morning, you're some kind of heathen. What we don't want to do is swing this to a total side of legalism. But I would challenge you to take a moment and reflect on your own life. And ask the question, if someone was to look at my life, would they see that it's truly my commitment to God, my love for Him, and my desire to serve Him, to pursue Him, and to tell others about Him that consumes my life? Or would they say, there's about three or four other things I see in your life that seem far more valuable to you than your God? John Calvin once said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Rightfully so, when we realize that God has designed us to worship. We were created to worship. There is a desire within us to worship, and we will all worship something or someone. And when it's not God, it will become something else. We will make an idol in our image or in the image of another to worship. You look at a world that has denied God, 
And they're still worshiping things. There are pro athletes. There are superheroes in the movie that we look to for our, our salvation and our strength and our hope. We all worship something. And when it's not the true and living God, it will become an idol that cannot fulfill the role that God must play in our lives. And verse 20 shows this contrast. That there are those facing destruction who place their lives and their hope and their strength in idols, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. Unlike these idols, the Lord is living. He's the one that breathed life into this world, that created everything out of nothing, that is before all things and after all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is eternal. He had no beginning or end. He's self-sustaining. He doesn't need our help or assistance. He is the truth And his spirit is our teacher of the truth in contrast to these idols, the teachers of lies. And he speaks to his people through his living and active word. Which is why he calls his people to do what? To be silent before him. You don't need to speak on his behalf. You just need to be silent and listen to what he's saying. Unlike these idols that they try and get to say something, God will speak for himself. It makes me think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. This battle of the gods, whose God is greater. And although all these false prophets of Baal do everything they can, and they chant and they cut themselves and they beg their God to show up, to speak, to save them, to do something, there's silence. There's no reply. In fact, Elijah has a little bit of fun with it. He says, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe you just need to up the ante a little bit. He can't hear you. But Elijah doesn't have to do some kind of coercion to get his God to show up. He says a prayer. He waits, and the Lord speaks for himself. He shows himself to be strong. Psalm 62.5 says, My soul waits silently for God alone. For my expectation is from him. How often do we look to an idol, a false god, because we're unwilling to wait in the silence? We want a quick answer. We don't want to wait for it. We don't want to pursue God and press into his word and his presence to hear from him. So we look for a quick solution. Well, what did so-and-so say about it? What does this commentary say about it? Well, what's that person's opinion? Well, what, what do I feel? Instead of sitting silently before God and saying, what do you have to say about the matter? But God is alive and active and willing to speak to a people that are willing to listen. And so he calls them to wait silently before him. And here's what we need to realize within this. That a whole lot more is at stake than just our attention It's a question of whose image are we bearing and who are we worshiping. I was reading an Old Testament scholar, Michael Heiser, this week, 
who was saying that when biblical writers mention gods, they aren't referring merely just to the idol made from wood, metal, or stone. People in the ancient Near East called both the spiritual entity and its corresponding religious object, God. And they fashioned the idol in the God's likeness. But they didn't necessarily consider the object to be identical with the God it represented. Instead, they believed that their God that they were worshiping would inhabit the idol, that it would reside or attach itself to the physical object. Therefore, the sacrifices to an idol were not so much done for the object before them, but to beckon or localize this deity behind it so that they could communicate with it and have relationship with it. Now, the Israelites understood that that a statue like Baal, even though it may be destroyed, didn't mean that Baal was gone and forgotten. Another idol would be brought up and built again. So many times in the Old Testament you read that the high places were brought low, that the idols were burned, and yet you read on a little further and you see the idols have returned because they believed their God was still very much alive. They created a new idol, not to create a new God, just a new dwelling place to access them. And understanding this, we gain a deeper insight into the significance of God's prohibiting His people from making any carved images, even of Him. In fact, you can go to the first two of the Ten Commandments, and they're specifically speaking to this. Yahweh could not be forced or manipulated to come to earth if you sacrificed to some idol in his image. And worshiping other idols also meant that you were calling these false gods or demons to Israel rather than calling out to Yahweh. It meant dependence on inferior beings, in fact, evil, and against Yahweh. And we're altogether creations of our own imagination, therefore incapable of helping us in our times of trouble. And not only was this wrong in looking to help from the enemy of God, but it also was denying God's established form of his image on earth. We could go all the way back to Genesis 1.27, and what we read is that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In a sense, you could say that you are the idol that God has placed on earth, the image made to represent him, to point to him. In fact, a simple definition, if you were to look up in the dictionary of an idol, is an image or a representation of God used as an object of worship. We are made in His image to display His likeness to worship Him. And as you present your bodies a living sacrifice, His Spirit dwells within you. And we have a relationship with God and become His lights in a dark world who exist to glorify Him. And so even in their false worship of an idol, it pointed to the true way that it was meant to be. That there was a sacrifice in hope that God's presence would dwell in this thing. 
And when we present our bodies as living sacrifices, we become the temple of God where he dwells within us, that we might worship him. In fact, even listen to the language of Psalm 95, 6, when it says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That there is a kneeling, there is a bowing down, there is a worship that takes place before the maker of us, the creator of us. But there's more to it. Not only has God made us his image bearers on earth, but he has given us the mold into which we are to be shaped to represent him best. You see, they would cast their idols into a mold that they would form them out of. We see this in verse 18. The maker of its mold should trust in it. Well, what is our mold? Colossians 1.15 tells us that he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so as our hard hearts and stiff necks are softened and melted by our God who is a consuming fire, we then are brought by the Holy Spirit to our mold, Jesus the perfect image of God. That we might be molded, formed, sharpened, chiseled, and shaped into His image. That we might look more like Jesus and less like ourselves. You see, the world will tell you that you just be you and do whatever feels right and do whatever you desire. But John the Baptist had it right when he declared that I must decrease and he must increase. And if we want to truly be an image that represents our creator well, we will allow him to chisel away everything that is us and continue to form and mold us into his image. And in doing so, we represent God to this world. But when we choose to bow down to false gods to things made with our own hands, we distort that which we were made to display. Because the reality is, whether you like it or not, you will become like that which you worship. Psalms 115 verse 8 says, Speaking of idols, those who make them are like them. So is everyone trusts in them. In Psalms 115, he's just finished explaining that even though they have ears, they can't hear. Mouths, they can't speak. Hands and feet, but they can't move, and they can't do anything to help you. And he says those who make them become like them. Paul would say in Romans chapter 1 that professing to become wise, they became fools. Because they gave up believing in the creator, the God of all creation, and they They chose to follow this lesser form that cannot offer them what they need. When you take a minute and you reflect and you look in the mirror of God's scripture and then you look at yourself, do you see someone that is displaying the image of Jesus in this world 
Or do you see someone that is living in the image of someone else? Because you will look like what you worship. And so if you don't like what you look like, you should take a step back to ask yourself, what have I been worshiping? What have I been investing my time and my focus and my energy into? Because we become what we worship. And for the Babylonians that are becoming this this prominent power in this time, they would become powerless, hopeless, lifeless, just like the gods they trusted in. But my hope and prayer for you today is what we find in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And I want to invite the worship team to come on back up as we close with this. It says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. My hope and my prayer for you this morning as we close, as we enter into a time of worshiping, bowing down, coming before the Lord our God, our maker and creator, is that you would continue to be made into the image of God as you continue to worship him as the true and living God. That where there may be idols in your life that God has revealed, is revealing, and will continue to reveal, that you would cast those aside that you would lay those down and you would look to the true and living God. The one in whom has created us for his glory, to represent him in this world and to worship him because your source of hope and strength and identity and purpose is only found in him. And through a life dedicated to worshiping him, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to be used by him, he will continue to mold you into an image that represents him to a dying world. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on our behalf, to save us from ourselves, to do what no idol could do, to make a way where there was no way apart from you. And Jesus, you came and dwelt among us. You lived and died on our behalf. And you gave us the image, the example, the mold that we are to be conformed into. Lord, I pray for each and every person here today that they would not be conformed to this world, but they would be transformed by the renewing of their mind. that they would look to you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who set the example for us, for the joy set before you endured the cross, despising the shame. And we know that you dwell at the right hand of the Father. You are dwelling in your temple, in your place of authority. You are holy. You are righteous. You are the God who is above all, who sees all, who is in control. And we look to you this morning to say, God, would you mold us? 
Would you shape us and form us into your image that there might be less of us and more of you, that your name may be glorified, that you might be magnified, that when people look at us, they see you, that we would reflect you, that your name might be magnified in this country. that all other idols would fall away and that we would worship and depend on the true and living God alone. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.